Welcome to the First Pres Podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 8.20, 9.45, and 11.10. You can learn more about First Pres at www.first-pres.org. As we've been reminded throughout this morning, today is a somber day as we remember the events of September 11th, 2001. Most of you can vividly recall where you were and what you were doing on that day. My husband was in the Pentagon, and I was in Louisville. And as a nation, we were in shock. We felt sucker-punched and perplexed. In his novel, The Thin Red Line, the author James Jones, who uh, wrote about the horrors of Guadalcanal, captures this perplexity when we're faced with such evil. Through his character, Private Train, we hear these words. This is great evil. Where does it come from? How did it enter into the world? What seed, what seed, what root did it grow from? Who's doing this? Who's killing us, robbing us of life and light, mocking us with the sight of what might have been? Does our ruin benefit the earth? Does it help the grass grow or the sun to shine? Is this darkness in you too? Have you passed through this night? From where does such evil come? Is that evil just out there and trying to get us? Or is that evil also within us? And how does Peter's Pentecost sermon help us to reflect on these questions? So as we look at our text, let us pray. Lord God, as we come to your word again, speak to us in ways that reveal yourself to us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to respond in ways that are for your glory and for the good witness of your people. Amen. Today we come to the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon as we find it in Acts chapter 2, verses 33 through 41. Please turn in your Bibles and pay attention to the word of the Lord. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. 
3,000 converts, 3,000 baptisms. I can just imagine the logistics of doing 3,000 baptisms. Now that's a sermon. <laughs> One thing we've learned about this sermon in the last few weeks is that it has been fueled by the Holy Spirit and Jesus is at the center of this entire sermon. So let's review what Peter has said. In the first part of this sermon, and we heard two weeks ago, Peter reminded us that God is here. We affirm this every Sunday. God is here. God is amongst us. You know, sometimes we can get so curious and so impatient about Jesus' second coming that we forget about his present presence. He promised to be with us, and he is. We can take that to the bank. In the second part of the sermon, Peter assures us that life beats death. Christ didn't die in order to get God the Father in a good, into a good mood. Christ entered death in order to rescue us. One of the church fathers has said that we were created like beautiful diamonds, but we fell into a pit of deep and heavy mud and we sank to the bottom. The weight of the mud kept us down, suffocating us. And what Jesus did was dive into that mud, that pit of death, in order to rescue us, lifting us up to light and life because we could not lift ourselves. As Tim said last week, Jesus died for us so that we might live for him. And let's say that again together. Jesus died for us so that we might live for him. Now, today, Peter concludes this sermon by declaring that God made Jesus Lord and Messiah, and in the words of the Brazilian soccer announcer, the crowd goes wild. <laughs> now let's remind ourselves of the context of this sermon. This sermon was not a planned church event for a quiet spring day with advanced publicity. This sermon exploded into the midst of an already volatile situation. Don't forget, just 53 days before, there was this frenzy around the crucifixion of Jesus. That day was marked by the chaos of the clash of world kingdoms. The Romans needed to quell any kind of dissent, and the religious leaders feared what the Romans might do, and that fear led them to a strategy of accommodation. Getting rid of Jesus would be a small price to pay for peace in our time, and it didn't hurt that they could also stay in their positions of power. So there was a tense political atmosphere. I know you understand that. <laughs> then for 40 days after the resurrection, the risen Jesus appeared to various groups of disciples. Now, can you imagine the gossip and the confusion of that time? If they had had the internet back then, people would have been checking their devices every 10 minutes just to see where Jesus showed up next. The plan had been to get rid of Jesus and then everything could go back to the way things were. The Romans in charge of the city and the religious leaders in charge of the congregation. But no, there were rumors and anxiety. And then this, Pentecost, only 10 days 
after Jesus has, had ascended. Again, we get so used to the millennia since Jesus promised to return that we almost forget about the immediate fulfillment of the promise to send the Holy Spirit and that that Holy Spirit would then turn those disciples into witnesses who would in their own generation turn the world upside down. So Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, tells them that all this strange activity is from God. It has nothing to do with drinking. In fact, it has nothing to do with any kind of human activity. And the most egregious human activity that Peter tackles head on is this. Peter reminds the people that Jesus, the one who did the miracles which they all saw, is the same one they handed over to be executed, the one they nailed to the cross. And as he says in the reading for today, God made this Messiah whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter is not just making a spiritual claim here. He's also making a dangerous political statement. For you see, the title Lord was used and reserved for Caesar. It was the proper address for the supreme authority in the empire. Peter is clearly saying, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Hold on to that thought. We'll get back to it in a moment. It's important. Now, when Peter reminds them again that they crucified Jesus, he's not pointing a judging finger at them so that he can gain the moral high ground. That's what we do. I mean, over 50 years ago, my husband was three hours late for a date. And for years afterwards, even if he was just five minutes late, what would I do? You're always late. Remember that day? <laughs> what Peter is doing is not that. Because Peter is preaching good news to sinners. No matter how hard we try to push God, to the sidelines and out of our lives, no matter how strenuously we try to be the masters of our own destinies, no matter how badly we mess up our lives, no matter how much we take matters into our own hands, no matter what, things are never out of God's control. You may have crucified Jesus, but God has made him Lord and Messiah. I saw a great posting on Facebook two days ago. It said this, if you think that by what you've done, you've thwarted God's plan for your life, understand this, you are not that powerful. <laughs> you know, since the beginning of time, Humanity has always rebelled at God's authority. It's part of our human, sinful, broken condition, and we see it all around us. In fact, we see it at a very early age because it begins with stompy foot toddlers who pout and yell, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> I was cleaning out my desk last week and came across these post-it notes, which I will use on documents that I hand over to Tim. You're not the boss of me. Oh, wait, you are my mistake. 
oh, just wait. <laughs> You're not the boss of me is actually a good one-sentence summary of Charles Taylor's immense book, The Secular Age. In that book, he tells us that the best way to describe the culture of individualism in which we live is the buffered self. What he means by that phrase, the buffered self, is that instead of God being at the center of the cosmos and the center of our lives, we have insulated ourselves, almost put ourselves into a personal bubble wrap against any authority that would dare to tell us who we are or what we should do. And what's more, anyone who attempts to exercise that kind of authority over us is judgmental and hateful. That buffered self, though, results in a trinity of self-centeredness. A trinity of self-centeredness. First, we become our own God and answer to no one but ourselves. We reject God, and in the words of Jeremiah, we hear this. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. The second thing is, we become our own savior. We seek our own remedies from our suffering, but most often those remedies only increase our pain. And again, the prophet Isaiah tells us of the futility of self-salvation when he says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And then thirdly, in this trinity of self-centeredness, we become our own creator. The mantra, you can be anything you want to be if you want it badly enough, was used to build confidence in our kids, but now we see that it has led to sad, distorted lives. When we try to be the master of our desired destinies, we soon discover that the world will not bend to our will. This, is not, this, you're not the boss of me orientation has in many ways led to the culture of death that Tim spoke about last week. So, when the people heard all this, they were cut to the heart and they cried, brothers, what shall we do? As soon as they hear Peter tell them the truth about who Jesus is and what God is doing through him, they respond immediately. And notice, Peter doesn't say to them, you killed Jesus, so what are you gonna do about it? The point is not putting them on the hook for what they did to Jesus. The point is getting them off the hook of sin and, and onto a new kingdom way of life. They had been seeking power and security in all the wrong places and from all the wrong people. They had thought that they were the ones in charge of their own lives, and if they didn't want Jesus to be a part of it, then they would take care of that. That desire to be in charge was not unusual. When Peter declares that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, he is clearly setting Jesus up as the authority over all worldly systems and powers. We are, and we're so aware of this, 
we are so tempted to look to kings or presidents to make things right, to save us. But here we are told in very clear terms, Caesar is not Lord. Finding a new Caesar will not solve your problems. Jesus is Lord, as we so powerfully hear in Paul's declaration in Philippians 2. God has exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. At this point, we should be in the same place that the people of Jerusalem were. We should be asking, what shall we do? What shall we do? Well, Peter tells us, first, repent. Sort of take away all the sort of religiosity sounding stuff of the word repent. It doesn't mean remorse, it just means head in a different direction. Turn around. So repent, you are heading in the wrong direction as you chase after false gods and false saviors. Turn around and head in the direction of Jesus. The second thing he says is be baptized. Now, this last week, I was reminded of something that we actually talked about in um, a couple of my Greek classes in seminary. I had forgotten about it, and then when I was preparing this sermon, it all came back to me. Um, we get a sense of the meaning of the word baptism from an ancient recipe for making pickles. <laughs> right, you remember Nicander? Yes. Um, the word baptize is used in the recipe for making pickles. The, the recipe says first take the cucumber and just dip it quickly into boiling hot water, but take it out, just in and out. But then baptize, the next step in the direction. None of you in your Pioneer Woman cookbook have the word baptize. <laughs> But the next step in this recipe for pickles is baptize it in vinegar. It is the cucumber's baptism in vinegar that makes a permanent change. It is no longer a cucumber, it is a pickle. <laughs> when you immerse yourself in Jesus, you are changed. Remember Paul's words? Anyone who is in Christ, anyone who is immersed in Christ, and we could say anyone who is baptized in Christ becomes what? A new creation. And in the words of the baptismal liturgy, this changes everything because you then are marked as Christ's own forever. Not just for a couple of weeks, but forever. Then the third thing that we are called to do is to receive forgiveness in the Holy Spirit. These are great gifts that allow you to stand up straight, no longer paralyzed by the effects of rebellion and sinfulness. You are empowered to walk away from the bondage of other kingdoms and into the freedom of God's kingdom. Well, We've come to the end of Peter's 
Pentecost sermon, except that the text said, with many other words. So I could say many other words, but I won't. You've heard enough words this morning. But look what happened. Peter's words were God's word to the people. And you know this from the beginning words of Genesis. When God speaks, worlds are created. And that's exactly what happened at Pentecost. There were 3,000 converts in baptisms, but as you continue to the end of chapter two, you will see that not only were converts made, a new community, a new world was formed. And it was a community of prayer, of praise, of scripture, and sharing. And the life of this community bore witness to what life is like in the kingdom of God, where Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord, Messiah, and Savior. Leslie Newbegin, the great British missiologist, has said that the visible life of the congregation is an interpreter of the gospel to those around it. So we ask ourselves this morning, to what do we as a congregation bear witness to because Jesus is Lord and Savior? Can people see that because we follow a different Lord, we have a different life, and they can too. Amen. Thanks for listening to our First Prez podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at first-prez.org.